Sir Balfour and the team of Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. This is weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday, the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And in what follows, Dave Cameron endeavors to do, as he always does, uh, endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of note this week, almost uh, the entire theme of the show, one might say, is the uh, four pitchers to undergo some sort of either season-ending or at least very long-term injury. We discuss Cliff Lee. We discuss Hugh Darvish. We discuss Marcus Stroman. We discuss Zach Wheeler. What are the implications of their injuries to those particular pitchers, to their teams, and also uh, perhaps by extension to the league, to the league as well? We discuss them. Reserve uh, reserve a couple minutes towards the end of the episode to consider briefly Chris Bryant's near future and less near future. And finally... Uh, before we end, uh, before we end, Dave Cameron uh, gives me this advice with regard to the podcast. You shouldn't keep doing this. Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. If you hear too much background noise, because I have all these waves crashing in the background. Uh, are you surfing while you podcast? No, I'm not surfing while I podcast. That's a that's preposterous. I'm on a balcony near the ocean, though. Oh, that's uh, not bad. Yeah, I'm visiting my grandfather. Remember how I do that every year? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm down here in Jupiter, Florida. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I was going to go over to the Cardinals today, except uh, it's a little bit too much work, part of which involved uh, writing some companion... Pros for Kyler McDaniel's Cardinals list. Right. So instead of seeing the Cardinals, you're writing about the Cardinals. Yeah, boring, right? Yeah. Mm. This is kind of the classic nerd stereotype, right? Yeah. Like instead of instead of watching a game, you buried your nose in a spreadsheet. I had, uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I got a couple yeah. spreadsheets I used for that. Yeah. 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 It was uh, a yeah. not. But I wanted. Here's the point. I wanted to go to the game. Right. I wanted but the to spreadsheet see the, took priority. The spreadsheet yeah. took priority. Yeah. 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 That's what it's doing to us, Cameron. <laughs> yeah, what is that uh, when you are the uh, the victim of your own device? Is that a thing? Uh, victim of your own success. Maybe. Victim of your own success. I might have actually just been accidentally quoting an Eagle song, which is embarrassing. <laughs> Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, that's all I want to say about that. Um, except that uh, I'll be going to. I think I've told you I'll be going to Mexico City on on um, Thursday. That is the best place to enjoy the start of the college basketball tournament. Yeah. In, a, in the country where no one cares. I'd be less concerned with that, although I believe that we are going to see a Cruz Azul match. That is a uh, football team down there. And then I believe I will see Diablos Rojos play. The former... Uh, so the, the Red Devils and the Blue somethings? What does Cruz oh, yeah, translate to in Spanish? I don't know. Cruz. I should know this, too, yeah. How's your Spanish? Yeah. Do, you, do you speak okay? Uh, you know, I took it in high school, so I have whatever's left over from 15-year-old high school Spanish. Right, yeah. Well, we're, uh, both yeah. my wife and I are below that. But we're going to see Craig Robinson there, uh, which is fun. And, uh, yeah, some other things like that. Cruz means cross. Oh, so blue cross. Blue cross. Oh, blue cross. Maybe they'll be playing the blue shields at some point. I'll, I'll, check, I'll check in on it. Yeah. I'll check in on it. Okay, uh, let's see. Let's do baseball. Uh, I thought we could do... We, we have a talk for some time. Um, and so part of w- uh, what I'd like to discuss, and I think we'll provide material, good material here, uh, involves at least one event that happened 
um, maybe even now two weeks ago, but it uh, dovetails nicely with some other themes that are current. And uh, I wanted to sort of investigate uh, some pitchers who are experiencing arm trouble and uh, the effects that it's having on their teams, and I guess by extension uh, maybe the league. Uh, the first one, though, and I don't actually know what his exact, his precise injury status is right now, but it, it was Cliff Lee. That was announced while we were in Arizona. Uh, yeah. Cliff Lee, so uh, Cliff Lee is not, um, he's been put on the 60-day dis, uh, disabled list, I think, but he's, he's not officially out for the year. Well, so surgery has been recommended, uh, and he has decided to not go through with the surgery. He's going to just try and do the rest and rehab thing, because I think, you know, when the initial news came out a couple weeks ago, one of the comments that Lee made was, you know, he's 37 years old, he's not sure how much longer he's going to pitch anyway, surgery for him might just be, you know, the end of his career. Uh, with $37.5 million due for this season, including the buyout for next year's uh, contract, which is now obvious, uh, there's no way Lee's going to retire this season. But if he thinks he's not going to aggressively try and rehab, then surgery might not make sense for him. He might say, you know what, I am going to go away at the end of this year, so maybe I'll just sit around and, and go on the DL and stretch and see what happens. And then if it's July and my arm isn't any better, uh, then I'll just be out for the season. And then once the Phillies pay me my buyout for next season and I've collected the full $37.5 million I'm owed and I'm a free agent, I will just retire, which yeah, is well, I support, what I, uh, I, support I would that. imagine he'll do. I support that course of action. The, yeah. <clears throat> um, well, here's, a, here's a, a, a slightly tangential question. If, say, uh, it's not a, this does not apply to least specifically, but with regard to pitchers who are essentially diagnosed with a – does he have a torn ACL officially? Uh, so yeah, no, I feel, I think he has, uh, it's not torn, it's just damaged, okay. but it's surgery has been recommended anyway. Okay. Uh, have other pitchers in the past been diagnosed with that? If they were to retire, they say, I don't want to go through it all. I'm just going to retire. Would yeah. they, would they have the procedure done anyway? Or are they just now regular people walking around with, with uh, damaged UCLs? Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is, you know, and depending on what you're going to do with your life, you don't necessarily need, you know, to have uh, Tommy John surgery. Uh, like, you know, normal people in life, and I think Cliff Lee actually doesn't have UCL damage. He has, like, flexor tendon bundle damage, which is, you know, in the elbow. It's similar kind of injury, and it requires Tommy John as well. Uh, but I think, you know, assuming that he's not going to go into, you know, stocking shelves at a grocery store as a second career, now that he has, uh, you know, a lot of money in the bank, uh, he probably doesn't need to have the surgery. He can probably just uh, let the pain go away, which it eventually will, and it will kind of heal itself to some degree. He won't be able to throw a baseball uh, with any kind of, uh, you know, velocity. Yeah. Or, oh, yeah, right, or, or without being in pain. So if he ever wants to play catch with his kids, then maybe he should go ahead and have the surgery. Uh, but to, you know, live a normal life and, you know, drive his car, he probably doesn't need it. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, why would he get it? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think if... My guess would be that he'll eventually have surgery. And, like, you know, maybe in June or July after a rest and rehab doesn't work, he'll break down and have the surgery, and then at the end of the year he'll say, uh, goodbye, that was a fun career, and he'll, instead of, like, rehabbing like a major league player, he'll rehab like a, you know, retired human being. Okay. Now, the the Phillies uh, entering this season do not, uh, before Lee's injury, they did not appear to be uh, obvious contenders. They uh, suck. Okay. Or you just want to for the euphemistic route, but you can, that's the Dave Cameron route. Plain talk from Dave yeah. Cameron. The, um, uh, but, but with, without a healthy Cliff Lee, their chances are even worse, I presume. 
but one of the uh, one of the valuable attributes of Cliff Lee to the Phillies was that the fact that he was a trade chip. In fact, you said you suggested that if you were another team, you might even prefer uh, Cliff Lee. And of course, Cliff Lee attached to Cliff Lee's contract, then you might Cole Hamels. Uh, so I imagine that there uh, are ripple effects being played here. Or you would like to further... Well, uh, what I was going to say is I would prefer Cliff Lee if the Phillies had basically paid the entire portion of his contract in order to buy a prospect. Essentially what I was arguing in the Cliff Lee piece is that uh, the Phillies uh, were not constrained by their uh, seemingly uh, strange desire to not pay any of Cole Hamill's contract with Cliff Lee. It was clear they were going to have to pay a good chunk of it. So my argument was they should just pay all of it, essentially, and, and get a good prospect in return. Obviously, teams would have needed to see Lee stay healthy, at least through spring training before that happened, uh, which you know turned out to not be the case. He just was uh, incapable of pitching, so that goes out the window. But I would say at this point, uh, now the Phillies should be even more eager to pay down some of Cole Hamill's deal in that they can't use the same... Uh, kind of strategy with Cliff Lee to acquire prospects. A rich team who's rebuilding, which is what the Phillies are doing, uh, should be trying to use their financial resources to stockpile talent. The best way for them to do that is to pay down contracts in order to get better talent in exchange. They were going to do that with Cliff Lee. Now they can't. They should absolutely do that with Cole Hamels now. So th- th- that's essentially like, uh, well, of course, we saw the Red Sox, what, just uh, two, three weeks ago? They signed Yon Mankata. Uh, yeah. They spent $31.5 million. There was There was tax, uh, roughly that same amount, if not exactly that same amount. So they spent $60 million on a prospect. Uh, yeah, and you know I think we've actually seen this in trades as well. I think one of the more famous ones is the Carlos Santana trade from the Dodgers to the Indians, where he went for Casey Blake uh, because the Indians paid all of Casey Blake's salary uh, in order to get a better prospect, in this case, Carlos Santana, instead of you know some marginal lower prospect if the Dodgers would have absorbed his contract. Uh, this turned out to be one of the worst decisions of the Ned Coletti era, as Carlos Santana turned into a really nice player, and getting you know a few million dollars off the books in Casey Blake's money uh, turned out to not be that helpful. Yeah, right. So, so there you go. So this is another situation where um, we, we, I think the a theme that we've, we've addressed is um, you know teams using their financial advantages uh, to buy prospects. There are fewer and fewer ways to flex that sort of. Uh, Fiscal superiority? Is that a way? Fiscal strength? Yeah, right. Financial resources, I guess would be another way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, like, Major League Baseball's done an okay job at closing some of the avenues for teams to just go out and throw a bunch of money. The Cuban influx has challenged that, or as Rob Vanford says, has stressed that a little bit. But, uh, now it's, it's harder for the Yankees or Red Sox or whoever to just go out and, you know, spend crazy amounts of money, at least it was, uh, before this last year or so. Uh, and just sign a whole bunch of prospects. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why they're pushing for an international draft is to kind of even more limit this kind of uh, just pure spending power leading to a lot of young talent going to rich teams. Right. I, and, of course, I still uh, I still find your, your proposal very compelling regarding the bonus pool, the overall bonus pool. I think it's a great idea. But, you know, neither here thank, nor there. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's a great uh, idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully Man- Rob Manfred agrees, but I would I would say the chances of my – Get rid of the draft strategy, or about as likely as the Phillies winning it all this year. Right, and so you. So with regard to Lee, the point is that the Phillies find themselves now in even perhaps more thoroughly in a position where they need to probably pay some of Cole Hamill's uh, salary. I mean, they don't have to, but it, they're going to have to make a choice. And, and every team that's going to negotiate with them is going to say, "We'll give you some package for Cole Hamill's if we have to take all of his contract, and we'll give you some better package in return. We'll give you more talent if you pay some of the contract." and kind of subsidize Hamels while he plays for us. 
this is simply a choice that Philly has to make, is do we essentially want to buy talent uh, using Cole Hamels as a, as a trade chip and, and a guy we're willing to pay to play for someone else in order to get more talent in return? So far, their answer has been absolutely not. We're uh, not going to pay any of his contract, uh, given the choice between uh, getting better talent in return or just saving some money. It seems to me that the Phillies should choose talent. Okay. Uh, okay, let's move on to our second pitching victim. That is you, Darvish, I think. We're going roughly chronological order here. You don't know who the third is. Well, maybe you know who the third is, but it's, it doesn't matter right now. We're talking about well, you, Darvish. Well, there's, there's actually two more coming, right? There right. should be two, two more coming. One of, well, one of them is... There's a there's a guy in the Toronto <laughs> system who might you know rhyme with Doman. Oh, oh, of course, that's yeah. of course. Oh, that's yeah. terrible. That's right. I yeah. think I had pushed that one away because <laughs> we've had a spate of articles to the effect that um, that 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 guy is great. Anyway, let's start. Let's start with number two. Uh, you Darvish. This actually yeah. might not be. Okay, it's obviously not great for you, Darvish. Yeah. And on a number of levels, but it's. Um, and that should not be ignored. I think frequently, uh, because probably a lot of we, even if we're not fans anymore, we started as fans. We 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 say, oh, like how is this going to help the team? It doesn't help. It doesn't help you, Darvish. It's kind of a bummer for you, Darvish, and it's a bummer for people who like watching you, Darvish pitch because you, Darvish is really fun. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know one of the criticisms of the piece I wrote, which I think you're alluding to, is uh, you know that this isn't the end of the world for the Rangers because it essentially gets them an extra year of team control or makes it much more likely that they'll get an extra year of team control over Darvish at the end. Obviously, that was written from the fan of a Rangers perspective. So if you're rooting for the Texas Rangers and your interests are solely about the Texas Rangers uniforms, then from your perspective, uh, this isn't the end of the world. This is the least harmful of these you know, big four pitching injuries that have happened so far this spring. From a Darvish or from a player perspective, you know, this sucks just as much as the rest of them. We're not celebrating the, the fact that Darvish got hurt. Uh, but the Rangers are not a good team this year, and they weren't going to be a good team this year with you, Darvish. And uh, from a, you know, kind of 2015 contention status, this doesn't really move the needle all that much. It moves it a little bit, but not that much. Uh, and the fact is, you know, now that the Rangers get 2017 U Darvish that they may not have had previously, uh, you know, uh, teams who are not good, <laughs> as we just discussed with the Phillies, trade present for future all the time. This isn't a trade that the Rangers chose to make necessarily, but I think, you know, if we were just going to sit down and say, brutally honest, would you rather have a completely healthy U Darvish under team control in 2015 or 2017, given the Rangers' chances this year, they maybe should choose 2017. Okay, what was the uh, what was the outlook on the Rangers before the Darvish injury? Bad. I think we had them as like a 73 win team with about a 8 percent chance of making the playoffs, and now we have them as like a 70 win team with about a 4 percent chance of making the playoffs. That happened so quickly because wasn't it just like it feels like two three years ago they were in the World Series, correct? Yeah, they've. They, I would say the last two years uh, of the Rangers' decision making has been as bad as anyone's in baseball. I, I think if you look at the Prince Fielder contract and the Shin Su Chu contract and the Elvis Andrus extension, uh, and then you know kind of their. Uh, questionable decision making along the way, uh, you know, making some of these, uh, like the, you know, the trades they've made in order to kind of, uh, push their window forward. Uh, obviously injuries derailed them last year and could not have been predicted, but they pushed a lot of future chips in to win in the short term, and then when that didn't work, now they're kind of paying the price for that. I mean, have all those deals, the fielder, Situation obviously thus far has not worked out particularly well, and to have an injured Prince Fielder coming back with the with the amount of years he's owed, that's not great. Yeah, I, I think the Fielder and Chu contracts I had ranked 
as like two of my three worst decisions last winter. Uh, I hated both of those deals. Uh, and, uh, you know, not that I expected Pittsfielder to get hurt and be worthless and Shinsu Chu to be a replacement level player. I mean, you know, this wasn't necessarily my expectations either. These were the worst case scenario outcomes in both cases. Uh, but the, you know, the reality is the Rangers took on $275 million in commitments to two slightly above average players who weren't going to age very well. Right. And, you know, they haven't aged very well very quickly. Right. Oh, uh, oh yeah. Another point with regard to Darvish, right? Now, the reason he's going to be around in 2017 is because he had, uh, part of his deal was that, uh, an opt-out would be triggered. An opt-out for 20, for b- before the 2017 season, right? Yeah, if he finished in certain places in the Cy Young voting. Right. Now we've we've mentioned opt outs briefly here, and I believe that there's one there's one absurd opt out somewhere in the league, and I forget what it was. It's the most absurd, if if there are other absurd ones. Uh, and mm. you've you've invoked it before. A player who can uh, if he's good, he can leave after like two years. Oh no no oh sorry. No, we're talking about the Yasmani Tomas deal? Yes, we exactly. We are talking yeah, about the Yasmani right. Tomas deal. Yeah, yeah. right. The, the, basically, the Diamondbacks gave him $68 million in guaranteed money. But if he's any good, he gets an opt-out after the fourth year where he'll have only collected $36 million of that. So he's going to be opting out of the final two years and $32 million, leaving some real money on the table. But if Tomas is good, obviously 232 is far less than he would get in the free agent market. Uh, so, right, the Diamondbacks' best-case scenario with Rizvan H. Moss is they get him for four years and $36 million. The worst-case scenario is that he's dying on Vicieto and they're paying him $70 million over the next six years. Well, we did see... We saw Tomas play. And he uh, looked a lot like Dion Vicieto. He's a, he is a, he's a large man. And apparently that's a slim that's a slim down version. So maybe... Uh, well, hopefully for his sake that he keeps doing that. But uh, he also did not appear to have much in the way of... Uh, Contact skills, uh, what we saw. He was uh, really having trouble. Um, and if you look at his uh, his Davenport translations... They're um, awful. Yeah. They're, they're really bad. They're, I mean, yeah. in fact, uh, the both the... I don't know if it's... You might have been at replacement level hitherto, or to, up to this point, and then uh, going forward is uh, below replacement level in terms of uh, Davenport's translations. Yeah, I mean, I think Zips and Steamer, which also include Cuban translations, have him slightly better than that. So it's not, you know, that the only data we have points to him being totally useless. But even the, I think the rosiest of projections have him as an average player. Uh, and, and this is, you know, assuming that he can be an okay defender, which is not at all clear given that they're trying him at third base, uh, where the early reports have been basically disastrous. Uh, so now he's not even getting reps in the outfield. Uh, so, you know, I think there's a decent chance that if Yuzmani Tomas is a negative defender, uh, wherever they put him at third base or the outfield, he ends up pretty close to replacement level this year because it, yeah, I think, you know, I, you don't want to overreact to spring training. You certainly don't want to say, you know, we saw five at bats from this guy where he looked bad, so therefore he can't hit. There's power there. I don't think anyone questions the fact that there's power there, but there are a lot of, you know, not good major league players who have significant power and the rest of their game is pretty terrible. I think, you know, even a guy like Dominic Brown, who's, you know, was a, a very top prospect, well, you know, I think the number one prospect in baseball, according to Baseball America a couple of years ago, has been basically a worthless major league player because when he doesn't hit the ball over the wall, he doesn't do anything of value. And, you know, Tomas is basically a less athletic version of that. Uh, this could go pretty poorly. Right. So we, we, we started talking about Tomas because of the, that, uh, I'd say, borderline absurd opt-out structure in his contract. Uh, Darvish's is a little bit more sane. I, I mean, are those the sort of two extremes of the opt-out? And I mean, are, are there any other players who have notable opt-out uh, language in, in their in their contracts? 
Yeah, there's actually they've become pretty common the last couple of years. Uh, so Elvis Andrus actually has a couple of them in his eight-year, $120 million extension that kicks in this year. Uh, so Andrus, if he's bad, the Rangers owe him $120 million. If he's good, he'll leave in a couple of years and or get a, get a raise. Uh, Zach Granke is actually going to hit the free agent market again next winter because he had an opt-out clause in, in the initial six-year deal he signed with the Dodgers. Uh, I think he's got like $70 million left after this year. Uh, if he has a good year, he's obviously worth more than 370 so he'll hit the open market and get a big raise. Uh, and I think, uh, uh, Rusny Castillo with the Red Sox actually got a similar opt-out where he can void the last year of his deal, not too dissimilar from Darvish. So these opt-outs, and there are, there are others as well, uh, have become a, a pretty common thing for kind of high-end players to ask for, uh, or at least players who have leverage. Uh, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that they can make sense for a team as long as you're getting an equivalent kind of discount in the price uh, in order to make up for it. Like if you say, you know, I'll give you an opt-out, but you have to take $20 million less or, you know, $30 million less or whatever kind of number you come to expect, uh, then I think it can make sense. But like Giancarlo Stanton got an opt-out in his 13-year deal after, I think, year six, the Marlins made it make sense because they basically put all the money after the opt-out, where uh, he gets like six hundred or something like that before the opt-out. So he's, he'd be opting out of like seven two hundred. Uh, which is a significant amount of money to walk away from. If you structure it like that, the opt-out can make sense. If you do it like what the Diamondbacks did, uh, then you're basically taking on all the risk and getting very little of the upside. Yeah, that doesn't sound good for anyone. All right, let's move on to uh, another sad case, uh, and that's the one of Marcus Stroman. And this is uh, particularly unfortunate, uh, certainly within the context of our site, because uh, uh, Jeff Sullivan had just written... Um, Essentially, the, the Fangraphs equivalent of uh, elegiac poems to Marcus Stroman in, in his repertoire uh, sh- shortly before this happened. Yeah, we're not sure what Jeff's going to write about now. He's actually uh, on vacation for the next couple of weeks, and uh, there might be a chance that he's going to spend these two weeks just trying to think of, like, now that Marcus Stroman is not going to be alive, you know, should I even be a baseball writer? He might right. be pondering his future without Marcus Stroman. So we won't know precisely. What, now, how did how did the Stroman situation happen? The, uh, well, I guess, what, he yeah. blew up his elbow. <laughs> like, all right, so, the, so that's how it happened. So or actually, his knee. Right, so Stroman was the guy who was not the arm. He, he, blew, he blew his ACL in pitcher fielding practice. Oh, that's not fun. Yeah, yeah, well, you, it's, you it's a little a little less bad than blowing out your elbow. Does it, does think, it take you know, a whole like, year though? Is it? Is yeah, it I mean, so, so right. Surgery will knock him out for the entire season, but at least from his perspective, this isn't something that he's going to have to you know try and regain his confidence in being able to throw you know 97 miles an hour again. Uh, he's just going to say, okay, my knee's so- strong. I've got a solid base. I'm good to go. Right. You know, it, it is funny, and I know this is uh, this is probably sorry. There's a helicopter. Yeah, it sounds at, like the CIA is coming. At eye level, in fact, yeah. Uh, no, the um, <clears throat> it's strange. Not that this is exactly there's an exact correlation here, but he's he strikes me, um, if for no other reason than he's able to get so much velocity out of his frame, he strikes me as one of the more athletic pitchers uh, in the majors. He's not sort of a large, lumbering like six seven two fifty guy. You know, not no, like yeah. Brad Penny. When he was right. around. Uh, uh, yeah, I think the, the least like Brad Petty you can be is probably uh, a positive in many ways. Uh, but yeah, Stroman's definitely a good athlete. And you would think that of all the pitchers to come back from ACL surgery, he would be one of the most likely given kind of his shape and the fact that he's not putting, you know, 280 pounds of weight on his knee even after he returns. Right. 
Okay, all right. And uh, now what are the what were the Jays' chances before and after that uh, unfortunate? So I, I think we had their playoff odds at around forty-five percent, which is division and wild card before the injury, and they went down to about thirty-three percent afterwards. So mm-hmm. they lost, you know, about twelve percent or so, which you know sounds like a pretty big amount for you know one pitcher who doesn't have a ton of major league time and might not be uh, seen as like, an ace-level pitcher yet. But, you know, our projections really liked Stroman. I uh, had him as like a three-and-a-half win pitcher, which makes him, you know, one of the 15 or 20 best pitchers in baseball. Uh, and the Blue Jays were exactly at that point where the wins were most crucial because the American League East is uh, wide open. There's no obviously best team that is running away with the division. Uh, and, you know, I think the Blue Jays fell kind of back into the pack uh, with a lot of other American League teams now in that 82 to 84 win territory, which makes them much less likely to win the top wild card spot and make them more likely to have to fight for the second wild card spot. So this is uh so now what so now it falls to Marco Estrada is that the idea? Well, maybe. I mean, I think the he's the veteran uh if they want to go with experience. Uh but they do have um you know two young kids and Aaron Sanchez and Derek Norris, not not Derek Norris, he's Daniel the catcher Norris. for the Padres. Yes. Dan, <laughs> Daniel Norris. Uh <laughs> And both of those guys have significantly better stuff, uh, but not necessarily the experience, and in Sanchez's case, maybe not the command. So it's going to be a bit of a question uh, that might also factor in on role. So, like, uh, Sanchez obviously pitched really well out of the bullpen for the Blue Jays last year, and there are many, including myself, who think that he probably just belongs in the bullpen. Uh, so if the Jays decide that they're better off with Sanchez as an elite setup guy or even maybe their closer... Uh, maybe that factors into the decision, even if they think Sanchez might be a better starter than Estrada. If Estrada's not going to be that same kind of high-leverage, dominant, late-inning guy, you might be better off with the worst starter and the better reliever than having you know, a mediocre starter in Sanchez and a mediocre reliever in Estrada. Wait, wait is the talk of uh, having Estrada close? Is that a thing? Well, there's some talk that he would at least pitch in like late-inning relief. Maybe, uh, maybe not close. He would probably be behind Brett Cecil on the depth charts for closing, but if Cecil faltered or if his arm problems uh, continued, he's had some some issues early in the spring, uh, Estrada would probably be in the mix of guys behind Cecil uh, to pitch the ninth inning. All right, and have the uh, Blue Jays been mentioned in the same sentence with Cole Hamels at all? Uh, they have been, because every team who needs a pitcher gets mentioned with Cole Hamels, but I think even Alex Anthopoulos, uh, when he gave a, a quick press conference uh, after Stroman's injury, he noted uh, that in this time of year there just aren't many aces, or there basically aren't any aces on the market. And then he revised himself. He said, well, there is one, but we can't afford that right now, uh, which basically was an exact reference to uh, Hamill's availability in the Phillies' continually high asking price. Uh, and I would say, you know, not to beat a dead horse that we've talked about a hundred times, but if the Phillies' asking price is too high for the Blue Jays, who are the team at the exact spot on the win curve, uh, and who now have a drastic need for a pitcher just like Cole Hamels, if they're still not willing to consider engaging the Phillies in talks, uh, and this is the precise thing the Phillies were waiting for, is some team at this point in the win curve who's pushed all in on winning now, signing Russell Martin, and, and has an old old rotation with Ari Dickey and Mark Burley, if they're not willing to make another win-now trade uh, to kind of replace Stroman, I'm not sure that we'll ever see a team be more desperate than Toronto is right now for a Cole Hamels type pitcher. Right, because the, those wins are worth uh, more than the typical whatever six, six and a half, seven million dollars to them. Yeah, I mean the Blue Jays are at the spot where they could probably even justify nine or ten million a win based on their spot on the win curve. Uh, you know they might not have the money for Hamels, but this is another instance where 
perhaps the Phillies could have taken advantage of the Blue Jays and said, you know, hey, look, we'll pay down some of the salary for this year. Uh, we're gonna have to, you know, we're gonna have, we've already spent it anyway. He's gonna, we're gonna pay him to pitch for us or pay him to pitch for someone else. We're not gonna pick up any of the future salary, but we'll pay down 12 and a half, 15, whatever, even 20 million dollars of this year's salary. So he's basically free to you. And in exchange, we want, you know, Sanchez and Norris and whatever, like whatever crazy demand you want to ask. And you can make that kind of request if you're subsidizing all of his salary this year. And a team that couldn't afford Hamels would, uh, you know, kind of be in the mix for him if they wouldn't otherwise be. Right, right, right. Okay. Uh, and finally, uh, um, oh, Zach Wheeler. Zach Wheeler. With the, uh, yeah, Zach Wheeler, of course, yeah. at, at one point, uh, Matt Harvey and Zach Wheeler were two notable Mets prospects. And then uh, Matt Harvey, of course, uh, graduated the majors before Wheeler and was fantastic as a major leaguer. And then, unfortunately, uh, hurt his arm and had to had to undergo Tommy John surgery. And then actually Zach Wheeler, uh, who hadn't necessarily had, I mean, despite great stuff, had not necessarily had uh, fantastic numbers in the the higher minors, if I'm remembering correctly, certainly not with uh, uh, Las Vegas or whatever it was. Um, he he uh, uh, he pitched uh, pretty decently last year. He was a league average yeah. pitcher. Yeah, maybe even slightly better. Uh, he's a, he's a solid young starter with some command problems, but a enticing potential if you ever figure out how to throw strikes. I think the problem is, uh, has come to light after Wheeler has been, you know, recommended for surgery, is he's been essentially pitching through pain for years. And, and Wheeler said this is something he's been managing for a long time. This isn't, you know, one of those things where he was fine and then it hurt all of a sudden. Uh, this seems to have been kind of like a fraying situation where it's been for years and years and years. It's just been generating, and now it's to the point where he just can't pitch through it anymore. Uh, you know, I think from this perspective, and with Sandy Alderson made some comments today about how they were aware of the fact that he was pitching through pain, but there was not really an obvious alternative. You, you're, you're either going to pitch through pain or you're, you're not going to, and you're just never going to pitch, and you're going to say, well, I'm not going to take the mound because at some point my elbow's going to snap. It's, it's not clear what the Mets should have done but it's also unfortunate that, you know, on a team that wasn't going anywhere, Zach Wheeler was asked to throw quite a few pitches uh, when it was known that he was in some pain and maybe only had so many bullets in his arm. I think if you're if you're a Mets fan, it's probably reasonable to ask right now, hey, if we knew that Wheeler maybe had a limited amount of innings to throw before he had Tommy John surgery, would it not have been wise to save some of those for when we were better rather than letting him throw those in a year where we were not any good? Right. Now, I, I remember uh, when speaking of uh, aces pitching through pain. Uh, now, this is, a, uh, of course, a slightly different circumstance, but that was uh, that was one of the issues that was um, that rose up uh, with regard to Jose Fernandez. Right? Um, is that at some point during one of his starts, he, he had tweaked something or whatever, but he had uh, what uh, he had continued pitching because he felt an obligation to to his teammates. I think that was roughly the story. Yeah, I mean, I think, so the Fernandez case was more of not necessarily, like, the fraying that we saw with uh, Wheeler. He was, like, really good, and then, like, the third inning of a start, his velocity went from, like, 98 to 89, and you could, like, literally see when his elbow broke. And then he continued to pitch for, like, two more innings. He was terrible, and he was, you know, probably uh, not helping his own case. But at that point, it's probably fair to say that when, at the point when he went from 98 to 89, he was probably broken, and there wasn't necessarily something where he could have come out of the game and avoided surgery. His elbow just exploded. With Wheeler, 
it's not so clear that he just had a moment where he had to walk off the mound and been like, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. Even when he initially was, you know, sent for an MRI, he said, this is no big deal, it feels the same as it always has. So he didn't necessarily experience this kind of break. He just did, had so much wear and tear that it eventually got to the point where surgeons were like, you shouldn't keep doing this. That's, uh, I mean, that's unfortunate for a young man to have to endure that. You would think, of course, I don't know, but, but uh, I mean, he was what? He was taken out of high school? Um, he's been around for a while, and he hasn't had uh, he hasn't had Tommy John surgery before this, so as far as I know. So is he just what he's been managing pain for the duration of his professional career? Yeah, that's basically the comments he made. It's like a lot of pitchers say they feel great, and then they don't. But Wheeler said, you know, this has been like a long term concern for him, and something the Mets were aware of. And you know, I think to Alderson's point. There isn't an obvious solution, right? Like, even from my initial question a couple of minutes ago, like, couldn't you have saved some of these innings for the future? The only way you really do that is you just stop him from pitching, even if he's capable of taking the mound, right? Like, you know, in the middle of July last year, should the Mets have just gone to Zach Wheeler and been like, hey, we know you, you think you're capable of taking the mound, and, you know, the surgeon might not be recommending surgery right now, but we think if you keep pitching, you're going to need surgery in the future, so we're just going to stop you from pitching, and then you're going to take the mound again next year. Like, no pitcher wants to do that. No one wants to sit on the sidelines and be like, well, my team's not good enough, so I'm not going to try and help them. Okay. Uh, it's it's yeah. a It's a sticky situation to say, Especially if you think that it's a, a situation like with Wheeler where you only have so many pitches to throw before it's going to be an inevitability that he's going to need surgery. How do you get those pitches into the most important situations? This, the Nationals obviously tried to do that with Steven Strasburg, and it went not so great for them from a public relations standpoint. Uh, and it's not it's, – I don't think anyone has the answer where they can say, this is how you should manage a young arm so that if he has surgery, he has it at the most opportune time. Right. Yeah, well, still unfortunate. And uh, what do we know about how this is uh, this situation is affecting the Mets? Because because uh, they do. I think you pointed out, or someone pointed out, that they have Rafael Montero, who uh, maybe his projection is roughly the same. Yeah, and Noah Syndergaard is actually even better, and Stephen Matz's is not so dissimilar either. I and mean, like one nice thing about the Mets being bad the last couple. Of years they have stockpiled a lot of good young pitching uh and i think you know wheeler wasn't matt harvey so it's not like they don't have another guy who's similar-ish in the wings so i think from a wins perspective this won't hurt the mets that much uh you know maybe they'll lose a win or something like that the real problem will be if a couple more guys go down so like this first injury doesn't hurt them that bad because they have montero they have Syndergaard, they have guys who can step in but if john niece gets hurt again uh, if they trade Bartolo Colon, uh, if someone else, you know, Jacob deGrom, or if Matt Harvey has a setback, if one of these guys go down, then you're going to start to be getting into the dregs of the guys that you don't necessarily want to be giving innings to, and that's when this first injury will have really hurt, because it, it will have taken some of the depth that they might need later. Right, yeah, and, that, and that's always the day. Injuries are never good, even if you have a guy to uh, fill his place immediately, everyone moves up a rung on, the, yeah. on that particular ladder. Right, and so, someone's going to do poorly. I mean, you just, it's very unusual for all five of your starting rotation members to pitch well all year long. So even if you, even if all these guys are going to stay healthy, maybe Bar- this is the year Bartolo Colon remembers he's 42 and 300 pounds. I mean, there's always going to be someone to replace. Yeah, well, of course, the uh, the Nationals are quite a good team, but uh, the Mets, the Mets are uh, they the roster is not uh, so bad. I mean, their they profile is about an 81 win team, almost exactly. Yeah, I mean, them and the Marlins are the two teams fighting for second place in the NL East and probably fighting for one of the wild card spots because after the top three teams in the National League, there's a huge cliff. 
uh, down to kind of the second tier. Uh, maybe you put the Pirates inching towards the top of that top tier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I think that it's pretty clear that the Dodgers and the Cardinals and the Nationals are uh, easy, easy favorites to win their divisions. Uh, and then you have a bunch of teams kind of hanging out in the middle. The Mets and Marlins are hanging out in that tier. This probably pushes the Marlins slightly ahead of the Mets, but, you know, not dramatically so. Um, and I think, you know, the, this hurts the Mets' playoff odds, but, you know, they weren't so strong, especially because they're so far behind the Nationals. Uh, but this isn't necessarily a death blow uh, to their chances like Stroman was to the Blue Jays. Right. Now, uh, finally, how many posts uh, have we written about Chris Bryant over the last week? I think like 104. Yeah, there have been quite a, quite a few. I guess with some reason, though, right, not only uh, was he fantastic last year, probably the best player in the minor leagues, especially if you adjust for age, uh, not only, I think he received, I mean, his projections have gone back and forth a little bit, but he's been between three and four wins, I think, by every system. Yeah. Um, he's, he's an exciting player, especially also with, with the swing analysis, getting to talk to, uh, uh, to Dan Farnsworth about Bryant's swing. <clears throat> um, I guess you, there are some things you can't necessarily control about, you know, pitch recognition and contact from that point of view, but the swing itself looks, looks beautiful. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I don't want to, like, throw too much more hype on the Chris Bryant's train, but I will say there's one guy in baseball who uh, has a pretty good, what I, at least from my perspective, has a pretty good understanding of what a good swing is. Uh, and, you know, it, w- when I appeal to authority on, on swings, this is the guy that I will generally appeal to. And uh, after the precipitous amount of Chris Bryant posts we put up last week, he sent me a note being like, I love Chris Bryant's swing. So the guy who I think... Uh, and this isn't Dan Farnsworth. I like Dan Farnsworth a lot, but this is a guy who's actually <laughs> in baseball, uh, working for a team, uh, is in love with Chris Bryant's swing and thinks he's going to be awesome. So right. uh, I think it's generally well regarded that Chris Bryant is going to hit for a lot of power. He's going to strike out a lot. Uh, it's just part of the deal. Uh, I think the, the comparison that I've heard the most from people in baseball is Troy Gloss, uh, where you're going to yeah. get some strikeouts. Uh, but, you know, you're also going to get 40 home runs and a decent batting average and a lot of walks, and if he plays any kind of defense at either third base or the outfield, that's going to be a really good player. Now, uh, this is one of those things that happens because uh, I probably only started reading Fangraphs and if it, uh, after Troy Glaus was gone. In fact, Troy Glaus might have been gone before Fangraphs started. Uh, well, no, I guess you – wait a second. Troy Glaus played part of 2010. Uh, yeah, he, he, hung around, he hung around for a little while. I guess he wasn't – he stopped being Troy Glaus at a certain point, but he had some, uh, yeah. he had some pretty strong seasons. He was awesome in the middle of the last decade, yeah. Yeah, uh, but the I guess he also had problems with uh, with injury at some point too. And yeah, and, and I think the 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 gloss comparison is mostly just with the bat. Gloss was a fantastic defensive third baseman. No one expects that of Chris Bryant. Okay, all right. All right. Um, uh, well, I think you've uh, fulfilled your obligation. Is there anything uh, I have a tendency to bury leads and ignore important news? Have we done any of that today? Well, the good news is there's been no news. So. Mm-hmm. You buried nothing because there was nothing to bury. Okay. I've been intending to uh, to watch more baseball. I've watched quite a bit of college baseball, but um, I find that I haven't been in the right the right place at the right time uh, with the computer, bad internet connections, etc. But uh, yeah, I would I would imagine uh, you're probably not missing as much as you think. Okay. All right. Well, exciting uh, exciting tonight, Florida Florida State baseball game on at 7 p.m. Uh, I will be doing something else. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Hey, you could be seeing, you could be seeing, well, maybe not in that game. Well, actually, Harrison Bader is going to be in that game. Also, so is Richie Martin. Those, those guys are two contenders for first-round draft picks. And, and uh, maybe, 
Who knows? Who knows, Dave Cameron? Maybe the Golden Spikes Award. Although I don't know if they're finalists, but maybe they are. I can check. Well, you've got you've got me marginally more excited than I was before. Well, because what do we know about what F? Uh, according to research done by your colleague Carson Testuli, what do we know about Golden Spikes Award winners? Uh, they generally turn out pretty well. They turn out pretty well. Oh yeah, like yeah. a median war of like twenty, and that that's among the group that is they're all still active. That's pretty good. Yeah, but I think that that generally speaks more to the fact that there's usually one really awesome college baseball player, yeah. and uh, maybe these guys are not quite at that level. Let me ask you a question. Um, do you think so? So actually, like if you look at the guys who are just active now compared to all the guys who've retired, it's essentially a split at like 2002, 2003. The, this newer group have already produced um, more uh, more wins, like on a per player level, um, a higher median war than that historical group has. Is it possible that 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 uh, like m- more talent is ending up in the college game than than was happening previously? Yeah, that, I mean that's one possible outcome. The other one, or one possible explanation. The other one would be that the people picking the awards are doing a better job. Like yeah, well, now they're not, they're, they're not targeting Kip Bonite anymore, and they're like, oh yeah, you know maybe Mark Pryor is the best pitcher in college. Uh, is that how you say his name, Kip Bonite? I, I'm pretty sure. How do you how do you say it? I don't want to say what I thought it was. It's uh, I kind of want to hear this now. I thought it was Book Knight, which doesn't uh, make any sense. You, now that yeah, you say, well, yeah, I think uh, whatever you thought was probably better than whatever Eno Saris thought. That's probably true. But, uh, yeah, that Bow Knight fellow, I guess it's kind of like, uh, what, what was this, like four or five years ago, Michael Roth was like one of the best pitchers in all college baseball? Yeah. Sort of a soft-tossing left-hander in right. that case. Yeah. Soft-tossing yeah. right-hander is not a great profile. Yeah, I think, uh, man, I'm stretching myself to see if I can remember this name, but I think like in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a guy at the University of Hawaii, Shane something or other, mm-hmm. with a strange last name, who threw like 86, but was awesome uh, in college, and uh, had the great nickname of Hawaiian Punch-Out, because he struck everybody out, uh, and uh, he was in the line, or maybe like the runner-up for the Golden Spikes Award, but that was going to be one of those things like, now we're going to give it to the guy who's going to be like a 12th round draft choice and wash out in double A. Uh, or we can give it to this like really awesome prospect, and I think they ended up giving it to the awesome prospect. Well, yeah, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking that maybe they decided not to, um, not to get they, that maybe they've decided to give it to players who are more likely to have major league success. I think so. I mean, if you're giving out an award that you want to have credibility and you want people to pay attention to your award, it's not so great to give it to guys who, uh, you know, for. Poorly. I remember, like, whatever, for the mid-90s, it seemed like the Heisman Trophy would always go to some terrible quarterback from the University of Miami who had no chance of playing in the in the pros or Florida State or whoever, like uh, Gino Toretta and all these guys who were just, you know, good college quarterbacks and terrible NFL quarterbacks, and the Heisman Trophy seemed to get somewhat devalued because they were giving it to guys who uh, would go on to be busts in the NFL. Perspective, it's probably give it to guys who you know are going to turn out to be superstars. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't make much sense. Uh, Shane Comine. Shane uh, Comine. Actually. Oh, Comine was it? Okay, sorry. Shane, Shane Comine. Yes. Shane Comine. Good, yeah. good googling school, skills. Yeah, yeah. There. It was. Yeah, he's from uh, Honolulu. Uh, what did you? Did what, you he actually went Hawaiian to the, punch out. I did. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And then uh, right. actually, University of Nebraska. So oh, slightly right, more. But he was from Hawaii. He's right. from Hawaii. Yeah, slightly yeah. higher profile in terms of uh, of a school. Um, Where was he? When was he drafted? So he looks like he was drafted uh, the ninth round of the 2002 yeah. draft. Right, but I think in the 2002 season he was like maybe the best pitcher in college baseball. Um, 
If you give me one more second, <laughs> yeah, I can This do makes that. for a riveting podcast. Wait, listening. is it surprising or not that the Oakland A's took him? Uh, not at all. Not at all. Right. The, the 2002, that's the Moneyball draft, right? Uh, is it? Yeah, maybe, yeah. That's the Jeremy Brown and Nick Swisher and all those guys. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so, uh, yeah, he had, uh, he was actually really good in 2001, too. Actually, he was really good all those years. Yeah. He it was is, awesome in college, yeah. Yeah, it's strange, like, cause there were a couple guys on the Golden Spikes list like that who were fantastic. They had, they had crazy, uh, numbers in college, and then, of course, you know, but then they stayed through their senior year. Right. And you're going to be like, well, you stayed through your senior year. And <laughs> Pretty of good sign that you're not so good. Right. And a pitcher a pitcher has a greater incentive to go to the majors than a, than a hitter does, right? Yeah. I mean, they both do. Because, like, really, if you get drafted after your senior year, you have no leverage and you can't really – I mean, at that point, the only thing you can tell a team is, I'm going to go play in the indie leagues or something because right. you've lost your ability to – go back to college, so you get no money. So uh, pitchers have more of an incentive to go, but everybody has an incentive to go after their junior year. Right. Now, he was actually uh, – Comini was actually drafted after his junior year as well, but then only in the 19th round. Yeah. He was not – I think he I think he topped out at, like, 86, if I remember correctly. He was uh, uh, the ultimate soft author. Yeah, yeah. But, but really, really good in college with lots of movement and, you know, yeah. and a, a great nickname. Hawaiian Punch-Out is an all-time great nickname. And I also think, I'm having you think that the University of Nebraska probably didn't mind having him around either. I think they probably liked having yeah. him, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're done. We're totally done. Uh, thank you so much, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been uh, Major Gator Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.